The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. So I should clarify something. Um, we didn't read A Christmas Carol on uh, Christmas Eve. We read Twas the Night Before Christmas. Those are two very different stories, um, and lengths of stories, in fact. Well, as I said a minute ago, I'm John. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and that is not my most important identity uh, that I have as a human being. Um, I have lots of different identities. So I'm one of the pastors. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a husband. I'm a runner. Um, I drive a Subaru. Like, there's lots of things that are my identity, but the primary identity, the one that is most important to me as a, as a person is the fact that I have been restored by Jesus Christ. That's my, that's my most important identity. Everything else, every other way that I view myself is viewed through the lens of the fact that I have been restored by Jesus Christ. And what that means is, is I, like, I haven't always been a Christian. I haven't always been a pastor. Um, I grew up, as I said in the introduction, I grew up in, at First Presbyterian Church in Peachtree City, Georgia, and went to youth group, uh, went through confirmation, did that, whole, did that whole thing, and felt like I went on a mission trip, and I felt like God was calling me to the mission field. So I graduated from high school, went to Bible college. I was 17 years old. Uh, had zero study skills, and after the first year, I failed out, of, failed out of Bible college. And one of the things that was good about that was I met my wife um, there, um, but I was, I was not following Jesus. There were lots of things that were taking place in my life. Uh, there was lots of maturity issues, and I was, over a period of time, what I realized and what I look back on now as I realized I wasn't really following Christ. I was not a Christian. We, we went to church after we got married, after we had kids. We sort of did all of, the, all of the churchy things, right? We sort of did all of the things that, that we feel like, we felt like we were supposed to do as good people. We went to church. We, we had our kids uh, sprinkled when they were, when they were children. And um, we went through that whole process. And, and over a period of time, was we found that there was something that was missing in our lives. And we had had, Ann and I had had enough, like enough church in us. We had had enough Christianity in us because we were, we were around it where we sort of knew that the thing that was missing in our lives was Jesus. Only we didn't, we didn't know what we were supposed to do about that. We didn't know what our next step was supposed to be um, so we kind of started going, going to different churches and, and kind of trying out different churches. Uh, maybe some of you have done that. Uh, maybe you're doing that now. And we moved to Columbus, Ohio. And over a period of time, we were looking for child care. And we found someone who, um, who said, she, she said, I'm sorry, I'm full. And then I think five minutes later, called my wife back and said, I know I told you I'm full, but God told me I'm supposed to take your children. So she took our kids, and over a, over a period of about three to six months, uh, this lady began to invite us to come to Marysville Christian Church. And at the time, I was working in retail. I was working a lot of Sundays. So this person, um, Teresa, waited outside on Sundays uh, for Ann to get there, 
carried our kids in, carried our kids' stuff in, sat with Anne and answered her questions. When I went to church, she answered my questions. And just over a period of time, we came to realize who, um, who Jesus was. And fast forward, this is a few years, uh, 1998, I was working with our student ministry in Marysville, and we went to a CIY conference, and they had this altar call, and the focus that year was on, uh, how, was on encouraging people to go into ministry. So at the end of CIY on Thursday night, they had a big altar call, and they said, you know, if you feel like God is calling you into ministry, we want you to come forward so we can pray over you. And the way I usually tell, I was probably the oldest person that went forward that night. Um, I was 28, 27 years old and went forward. And just over the next few years, as just opportunities presented themselves, I became more and more involved in churches. We moved to Iowa and I got to be a, like a volunteer youth pastor at a very small church in Lamar's, Iowa. We went to a youth ministry conference where uh, for the entire week, I was exposed to people who were in ministry full-time, and all I could think about, all I could wonder about was how does, like some, how does someone at this point who is 32 years old, 33 years old, go into ministry? So we had this eight-hour-long conversation on the way home and kind of figured that out, went back to Bible college, um, got, my, got my bachelor's degree, was hired um, at a church in Iowa, and I'm going to tell a little bit more of that story um, toward the end but I say all that because my primary identity is someone who's been restored by Jesus. There are lots of things that, that, that I could look at and identify myself as, but my main identity is one who has been restored for Jesus. And my hope for you is that if you're, if you're there today, I'm really thankful for that. My hope for you is if you're finding your identity in any other thing, that today you will make the decision to find your primary identity as someone who has been restored by Jesus. Um, we're in this series right now for, for Christmas, calling it Unexpected, Finding Jesus in Isaiah. And last Sunday, we talked about Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. We talked about the way that Jesus was chosen to bring justice. Uh, we read part of Matthew 12, which is where we saw what justice looks like. It's restorative justice. Um, it requires from us a mind that's oriented around Jesus. If we want to live the way that Jesus wants us to live, we have to have a mind oriented around Jesus. That was the point of all of those things. Remember where the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Jesus, your disciples are, are harvesting on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus do? He tells them what the scriptures say. See, Jesus is out to orient people around the scriptures, and he's out to do that with us. And what we want to do is we want to be a people who, if we want to be like Jesus, we have to do the things that Jesus did. So we have to be about restoring justice as much as we are able. But in order for that to happen, something has to happen within each and every one of us. Before we can join Jesus on his mission, there's something that has to happen to us. See, God is making for himself a people. That was the entire theme of the book of Romans, which we went through uh, earlier this fall. God is making for himself a people, a group, a collective. We, we call that the church. God is making for himself the church. But before God can make for himself a church, 
He has to make for himself individual people. The church is made up of individuals, and that's where Isaiah Isaiah chapter 49 uh, comes into play. Um, We're going to read verses 5 to 6. If you have version, you can follow along in there. We've got all of the verses uh, laid out for you in our our Westway event today. But we're going to read, right now, we're going to read Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. Cody read it a few minutes ago. And now the Lord speaks. The one who formed me in my mother's womb to be his servant, who commissioned me to bring Israel back to him. The Lord has honored me, and my God has given me strength. He says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So last week it was Jesus is was chosen to bring justice. And this week we're talking about Jesus is commissioned to restore Israel. So what does that that mean? Well, Jesus is not just commissioned to restore the nation state of Israel. I mentioned that kind of toward the end of last week's message. Jesus isn't, isn't only interested in the nation state of Israel in the Jewish people. He's, he's making himself a new nation. Jesus is bringing his salvation to the ends of the earth. So when we see this word Israel, it means the Jewish people, but it doesn't just mean the Jewish people. It's an expanded kingdom. It's an expanded version of what God's people look like. And as I've been thinking and praying about this, I have three stories of restoration I want to share with you uh, this morning. First two are from Scripture, and the third one I'm going to complete my story um, in a little bit. If we were to flip back to Exodus chapter 34, I'm going to give you a minute to do that. Exodus chapter 34, let me catch you up where where the story is. Um, The Israelites have been freed by God from Egypt. Um, They've crossed the Red Sea, And when we get to Exodus 34, Moses has been at the top of Mount Sinai now for about 40 days. So he's he's been receiving the Ten Commandments from God. He's been receiving all of the rules and instructions about what the tabernacle was going to look like and the elements of the tabernacle and the priestly garb, what the priests were going to wear when they went and they did their service in the tabernacle And meanwhile, while all this is going on up on the mountain, down below, um, the people are growing anxious, which I think we we can sort of imagine that. It's been 40 days since Moses goes up there, and they're wondering what's happening with Moses. Why is Moses taking so long? So they grow anxious, and they go to Aaron, who is the priest, and they say, Aaron, would you make us gods so that we can Lead us, who will lead us. We can, you will make us gods that we can worship who will, who will lead us because we don't know where Moses is. So Aaron gathers all gold rings from the men and women. And, and you're probably familiar a little bit with this story. He gathers all of these things. He melts all the gold down and he molds it into the shape of a calf. So this calf comes, comes out of the fire and, and Aaron tells the people, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And I love the NLT. It says, um, it says they began to engage in pagan revelry, um, which is about what you can imagine. Um, it was a huge pagan party that they were having at the bottom 
of the mountain. And, and Moses kind of catches wind of this, and he comes down the mountain, and he sees what's going on. Um, he smashes the stone tablets. Um, this is kind of where we see this, um, this fit of rage in Moses. If you're familiar with the story, um, you know that Moses is prone to fits of rage, and they typically get him in trouble. Um, he takes the stone tablets, smashes them on the ground. He melts down the, the calf, the gold calf. I just love this part of the story so much. He melts down the golden calf. He grinds it into a powder, puts it in water, and he makes all of the people drink it. Like, Moses is not a happy person at this point in the story. And then, then he tells the priests to take their swords and go through the camp and just start swinging your swords, and 23,000 people die. And at this point, you're wondering, what has this to do with Christmas? Um, what's interesting about this whole scene, as we think about restoration, is, is just because there's this, sin, there's this consequence for the sin of the people, um, this doesn't actually make them right with God. I think sometimes we have this, we have this faulty mindset that when, we, that when we commit a sin or we do something wrong and we, we face a consequence, we, we get caught, something bad happens to us. I think sometimes we think that that, 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 that consequence, the, that maybe that punishment, maybe we would use the word punishment to describe that consequence, we sometimes maybe think that that punishment makes us right with God. Um, but that's, that's actually not true. It's just a consequence. It's just a punishment. That thing doesn't make us right with God. And if we were to, if we were to kind of read through um, Exodus 34, which we're going to talk about, we'll, we'll kind of see that. See, what, what happens is the people needed someone to intercede on their behalf for God. For them. So what Moses does is, is he goes back up the mountain because he is going to intercede on behalf of the people. The people have sinned, there's a consequence, there's a punishment, but, but there's still a distance in the relationship between the Israelite people and God. Something has to happen. So that, that thing is intercession. What's going to happen is Moses is going to go back up to the top of Mount Sinai and he is going to plead for the people. He is going to go to God and he's going to intercede for them. And what we need to understand today or what we get to understand today is that we too have an intercessor and his name is Jesus. See, that's what this has to do with the Christmas story. See, we have an intercessor on our behalf. We have someone who has died for us, who's paid the price and the penalty for our sin and has been resurrected and he, inter he has interceded on our behalf. Because without an intercessor, without a person who is going to God pleading for us, we are lost in our sins. We're lost in our punishment. We're lost in our penalty. And this is what we're going to talk about on Christmas Eve is our need for an intercessor and the fact that we have one in Jesus. So Moses 
plans to go back to the mountain. He's going to take two new stones to replace the ones that he smashed. Gets these stones, goes back up the mountain. And let's read Exodus 34, beginning in verse 5. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, Moses. And he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshiped. And he said, O Lord, if it is true that I have found favor with you, then please travel with us. Do you see the intercessory work here? Yes, this is a stubborn and rebellious people. Moses is interceding for the people. But please forgive our iniquity and sins. Claim us as your own special possession. See, what I want us to, what I want us to see here is that God's first step in restoring the relationship with his wayward people is to bring Moses to a place where he could understand God's character. See, God, the people need to understand God's character. They need to be reminded of who God is. So step one in restoring this relationship with God is understanding God's character. And what we have to see is that the restoration is only possible based on who God is. It's not based on the possibilities of the people. I want you to notice that what Moses did not say is, you know what, they're really not that bad if you would just give them a chance. God, if you, if you welcome us back, we promise we'll be good. It's not anything he says. In fact, he says the opposite. He says, we are a, we are a stubborn, we are a rebellious people. And what we're doing, Lord, is we are depending on your character to restore us. See, what we have to do is we think about restoration. Restoration in our lives, restoration in the lives of people who don't know Jesus. We need to remember who God is. We don't need to make decisions for other people around us who aren't followers of Christ. We don't need to think to ourselves, oh, that, person's, that person's too far gone. That person would never go to church. That person would never meet Jesus. That person would never enter, or enter into a relationship with Jesus. See, it's not dependent on that. It's dependent on God's character. And then once Moses understands who God is, once he understands God's character, what does he do? It says he worshiped and praises God. See, once I know who God is, what I'm going to do is I'm going to worship him and I'm going to praise him. To invite God to come with me, this is what's happening in this text, to ask for forgiveness. See, when we know who God is, the reality of who God is, when we know his character, that demands a response from us. 
And the proper response is to worship God and to seek forgiveness. This is an action that Moses has to take. And it's an action when when Moses eventually goes back down the mountain. He's going to call the people to do the same thing. To worship God properly. To repent of their sins. And this is verse 10. It says, The Lord replied, Listen, I'm making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I will perform miracles that have never been performed anywhere in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power that I will display for you. What's so fascinating about this is when God, when God restores the people, what he doesn't do is he doesn't give them another list of 82 million things that they have to follow. He just gives them the same Ten Commandments. There aren't a new set of rules for all of the people to follow. I think if we were to think about the relationships that we have, and, and maybe, we've been, maybe we've been hurt by someone, and we, because we want to be faithful followers of Christ, we forgive them, and probably what we're going to do, which is wise, we might add a boundary or two in those relationships. If someone hurts us, we might, we might add a boundary because we don't want to find ourselves in the same situation again. That doesn't mean that we're not offering them forgiveness. We're just, off, we're just creating boundaries for ourselves to not put ourselves in the same situation. And what's so fascinating about this is God doesn't do that. See, what God is after is restoring the relationship. God's not out to make it harder to follow him. Well, you didn't listen the first time, so here, let me add 25,000 more rules to you. Let me make this harder and more difficult. It's not what God does. He just gives them the same rules. And the reason we talked about this last week is simple, because God doesn't crush the weakest reed, and he doesn't put out a flickering candle. See, God is not out to crush us. God is not out to destroy us in our relationship with him. What we're seeing is God's heart for his people. We're seeing God's character when we read the Bible. We're seeing that what God wants is to restore us, to bring us back into a right relationship with him. Because in order for God to build himself a people, plural, He has to build for himself a people, individuals. He has to change hearts. He has to change minds. He has to change behaviors. And these are the things that only God can do. They needed to know his character so that they could trust him. They needed to trust him. And when they trust him, then they can live in joyful obedience to him. Don't you find that true in your own life? When you trust someone, aren't you more likely to go along with what their ideas are? Because you trust them. And what God wants is for us to know his character so that we can trust him, so that we can be obedient to him. Here's the the second story of restoration, and this this is at the end of the Gospel of John in John 21. If you want to take a moment and flip there. 
So this, is, this takes place after Jesus has been resurrected. And several chapters earlier in the Gospel of John, Peter has denied Jesus three times. Jesus has been arrested, and Peter kind of follows behind, and he's in the courtyard, and he gets asked on three different occasions, like, you were with, you were with Jesus, you were with Jesus, you were with Jesus. And each time, three times, Peter says, no, I was not with Jesus. Denies Jesus. So Jesus is killed the next day. Three days later, he's resurrected. And then in chapter 21, we, we see Jesus appearing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, where his disciples were, and, and they, were, they were fishing, which I find is so interesting. Like, after the story, it begins with many of these disciples being fishermen, and Jesus has been killed, and he's been resurrected, and what do they do? They just go right back to their lives as though nothing had changed. That's not what Jesus has for his disciples. Jesus doesn't have for his disciples, people who are followers of him, to just go back to their own lives after they've encountered him. He has something more. So they don't know it's Jesus, and and they're out fishing. And this man, they know there's a man on the shore, but they don't know Jesus. This man invites them to come and have breakfast with them. Um, Peter kind of thinks it's Jesus, jumps into the water and swims, and... um, they get on land. Jesus serves them breakfast and fi- bread and fish. And that's sort of when the lights go on in their heads. And then in verses 15 through 17, something happens. After, Jesus, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. What I, what I like about this story, if we were to go back and read the scene where Jesus denies, or where Peter denies Jesus, what we would see is each time Peter is asked if he's with Jesus, we have this sense where Peter gets more and more agitated in his response. I think the third one, it says Peter curses and says, I do not know him. Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I think one of the things as we read through this story, we have this idea that that Peter knows the character of Jesus. He knows who Jesus is. And I would say that we have the mindset that Peter loves Jesus. We know, if we again flip back to the story, we know that that Peter was ashamed and embarrassed when he denied Jesus. When the, the rooster crowed, 
And Jesus stares across the courtyard and sees him. Peter is filled with guilt and shame because of what he had done. So this isn't a matter of whether or not Peter knows who Jesus is. It's not a matter of whether or not Peter loves Jesus. What this is a matter of is obedience. Peter, because of, because of the reality that you know my character, because of the reality that you love me, Peter, what I want you to do is I want you to be obedient to me. I want you to do the things that I'm asking you to do. So when we think about restoration, when we think about being restored to God, it's really three things. It's knowing God's character, it's loving him and worshiping him, and then it is being obedient to him. See, Jesus was commissioned to restore Israel. That was, that was his purpose, to restore all of God's people back to God. And this work begins on the cross, and it continues through us. It continues as people become followers of Christ, and, and, and this is us. If you're a Christian in here, you're a follower of Christ. So then what we do is we, we participate in this restoration of God's people. It continues through us. Jesus' work on the cross was the foundation upon which this restoration began. And our heads and our hearts and our hands are the contributors to that continued work. See, the way, that, the way that Jesus is planning on restoring all of Israel, and again, it's not just the nation state. The way that Jesus is going to restore all of Israel to him is through the church. This is God's purpose for the church. To be restorers. To be bringers of justice in the world to participate in the work that Jesus has begun. So again, like how, how do we proceed? Well, we need to learn God's character. We need to be comfortable and confident in who God is. And I don't think I'm going to tell you anything new. If you want to learn God's character, what we do as Christians, is we read his word. This tells us all that we need to know about God's character. This book right here tells us what God's character is like. This is why we talk about this all the time, to read and study and learn the Bible. Because we're not, we're not just reading words. We talked about this in our Thursday night small group. I did not include this text in version. Jesus says something to the effect of, this is going to be a paraphrase of about four different versions of this text. Jesus says something to the effect of, you study the scriptures because in them you think you'll find salvation. But the scriptures point to 
me. See, when we, we read the Bible, we are learning about God's character. We're learning about who God is. And what we would see if we were to read from Genesis to Revelation, what we would see is evidence of God's faithfulness. We would see proof and demonstrations of God's faithfulness throughout the entire book. And then, when we face a hardship or a reality, and that question rolls around in our heads, and it rolls around in all of our heads, is God really faithful? Is God really going to bring me through this? Oh yeah, there was that time in Exodus where the people made this gold calf. And what God did was he forgave the people. God demonstrated his faithfulness to the people. I didn't make a gold calf today. I mean, I may have done other things, but I didn't make a gold calf. So if God is going to be faithful to them, then God is going to be faithful to me. And scripture is filled with example after example after example after example of God's faithfulness to his people. Because what the Bible is telling us is, is God's character. So if I can trust God's character, then I'm going to praise him. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to be obedient to him because I know God's character. So we want to know his character. We need to worship him alone. Alone. We need to worship God alone. We don't need to add anything to this. Found this phrase a couple years ago. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. See, when we add anything to Jesus, when we add self-righteousness to Jesus, when we add morality to Jesus, when we add anything to Jesus, what we're left with is nothing. Because our hope is found in Jesus alone. And then the flip of that is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. See, because of the character of God, because of the fullness of who God is, when we, are, when we have him, we have everything. We don't have to add anything to it. And then lastly, we need to be obedient. We need to see the things that God is calling us to. And, and, and we're going to learn that in here as well. It's, it's kind of interesting that, that the things that we need to be in right relationship with God all come from the same book. And haven't we just made Christianity so hard? Haven't we overcomplicated it? See, it's these three things, knowing God's character, worshiping him, and being obedient. That's what it looks like to be restored. And let me complete my story. See, you would have thought, I would have thought, after a period of time in my life, as I kind of navigated all of this out, that I would have had this figured out. That I would have understood this restoration process. 
And there was this thing, even, even as I was in full-time ministry, there was this thing that, that personally I kept getting hung up on in my life. Again, there was a really big period of time where, where we were not following Christ. And, and, I, and I knew what I was supposed to be doing, and, and I just I wasn't interested in it. So fast forward years and years and years, and I, I found myself thinking about that wandering and that wondering period of my life. I, I found myself just like wondering about what could have been. Man, if only, if only I'd been obedient to God. If only I would have taken these steps 15 years earlier. Why didn't I do that? Like I could see fruit. Um, at this point, I'm in, I'm in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and I'm in youth ministry, and I, I can like see fruitfulness, not only in ministry, but I see fruitfulness in my life, and I see fruitfulness in my family of God's goodness and God's faithfulness, and I just, I kept circling back to these same like set of questions, like why, why God? Why, like why didn't you, like why didn't you do something? What am I supposed to do with that time of wandering and wondering? Why would God have allowed that? I wonder if you've ever had a similar thought. If you've ever wondered why God allowed things in your life. Why God didn't act in the way that you thought he should have years and years earlier. Like, what do you do with that time? Maybe you've made a mess of your life and you're here today and you're wondering, like, what could God ever do with me? Well, this is the space that I was in. And then it was in 2007 or 2008. I was in our youth room in Cedar Rapids and I was getting ready for youth group that night. And I was, I was listening to music and, and the song came on. And it was a, like I'd heard this song dozens of times um, before. And it was... Um, it's an old, well, it's old. I'll say it's old because it's like 2005. It's my favorite era of Christian music. Cody and I had this conversation um, last week. Like if we had, like if this, if what we did on Sunday morning were about John Mulholland's preferences, it would be like 1998 to 2007 um, contemporary Christian music. That's what we would listen to. That's what we would play all the time. So this song, Chris Tomlin's song was on. It's called This Is Our God. And again, I've heard this song so many times. And it's just me in the youth room. And the first verse. A refuge for the poor. A shelter from the storm. This is our God. He will wipe away your tears and return your wasted years. This is our God. Just in that moment, like right now, like when I listen to this song several times throughout the week, when I listen to the song a couple hours a couple hours ago, like I'm just I'm overwhelmed with emotion because this is who God is. God is a returner of our wasted years. God is a restorer. God is a fixer of the things that we have broken. God is a fixer of things that we have messed up. 
And I'm, I'm here today, like, not because Westway Christian Church hired me. Like, you may think that that's the reason I'm here. I'm not here because I went to Bible college. I'm not here for any of those reasons. I'm here because, because God has been my refuge and my shelter. I'm here today because God has returned my wasted years. I'm here today because God has wiped away my tears. And he doesn't just do those things because he can. He does those things because it's who he is. Because these are God's character traits. This is who God is. And maybe you're wondering why you're here today. See, it's possible that, that you think you're here today because if you're, if you're a, a child or a student, you think you're here because your parents dragged you to church this morning. That's why you think you're here. Maybe you're here today because it's December and it's the Christmas season. And this is what we're supposed to do during December is we're supposed to go to church, right? That was the mindset that we were living in. We went to church because we were supposed to. We went to church because we had to. We went to church because the town that we lived in was like 10 minutes away from Anne's family, from her parents. And there were so many family connections in in these little communities that if someone would have driven by our house on Sunday morning and saw our car in the driveway during the church hour, someone was getting a phone call that their kids weren't in church. See, there are lots of reasons why you think you're here today. But I want you to know that you're here today because God wants to restore you. That's why you're here. You're here today because you need to hear the reality of who God is. You need to be exposed to God's character in your life. He's Yahweh. He's the Lord. He's the God of compassion and mercy. He is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. He lavished unfailing love to a thousand generations. He forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he doesn't excuse the guilty. He lays the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, and some of you are bearing witness to that reality. You have been affected by the sins of people who came before you. But God's out to restore you. Despite those things, God is out to fix you. This is who God is. And what I want to encourage you today is don't sit here today and do nothing. Don't be that person who 10 years from now, like when the light finally flickers on in your head. Don't be the person who looks back and think, man, if only. No, God can restore you in that. And I'm thankful that God has restored me. I'm thankful that God flickered, flicked that light on in my head and returned those wasted years. I'm so thankful for it. But here's reality. I wish I didn't have those wasted years. Regardless of what God had done in my life, as thankful as I am for them, I still think about them, and I don't want that to be you. There's this show that, that Ann and I have watched. It's called The Repair Shop. It takes place on this living history farm in England. 
Um, one of the things that I did for you today is in YouVersion, um, I found a YouTube video of the, uh, like someone put together their list of like their favorite repair shop episodes. So I, w- I would encourage you to take a look at that. But it takes place on this living history farm in England. And they have people who are skilled in all sorts of things, in metalworking and woodworking and, and paint and paintings and gold and silver and glass and all of these kinds of things. And what happens is, is people bring their, their family heirlooms to the repair shop. And they, they have this opportunity to kind of talk about like, like why it's meaningful to them. One of my favorite questions that they, that they ask as the item is being dropped off is, um, what would it mean to you to have this fixed? I love the way um, they do that. They're introduced to the person who's going to repair their item. They, they talk a little bit about their resume and their experience. So you can see what's going on here. They're, they're talking about the character of the person who's going to do the repair work. And then they have to do something that I can only imagine for some of them is very hard. They have to leave the item behind. They have to trust in the character of the person who is going to do the repair work that what they're going to get back is a fixed, restored item. You can only imagine the courage that that requires, the trust and the humility that that requires. And as I think about that, I think about those of us who, who are in need of restoration by Jesus. And the courage that that requires. And the trust that that requires. And the humility that that requires. I don't know what I want to tell you is God's character is worthy of that trust. And it's worthy of that courage. And it's worthy of that humility. And my prayer for you this morning is whatever it is that needs to be restored in your life, that you would leave that thing in the hands of God. Be comforted in the fact that he is, he's going to make you new. He's going to restore your wasted years. He's going to be a shelter from your storm. This is our God. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for who you are. I'm thankful for your character. I'm thankful for the hope that you provide. I ask that we would be comfortable with you. That we would trust you. That we would read your word to learn about who you are, the reality of who you are. That we would worship you, that we would praise you, and that we would live in obedience to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.